thank you for joining us on another episode of Mosaic Station. We're excited to chat with our lovely professors at SJSU on this episode around climate justice and um, environmental justice. Our facilitators today are Parl and Chelsea, um, who will introduce themselves in a little bit. We're super excited to partner with the Office of Sustainability to bring this podcast as part of 2021 Earth Day. And I would like to turn it over to PJ to please read this land, land acknowledgement. So we acknowledge the land on which we're meeting as the traditional home of the Puishan Ohlone speaking people and the present day Muekma Ohlone tribe. The Puichin Ohlone were missionized into both missions Dolores and Santa Clara. And the present day Muwekma Ohlone tribe is comprised of all known surviving Native American lineages, Aboriginal to the San Francisco Bay region, who trace their ancestry through the missions San Jose, Santa Clara, and Dolores, and the historic federally recognized Verona Band of Alameda County. In the Muwekma Ohlone language, Cochenyo Muwekma means the people, and without them, we would not have access to this gathering. We take this opportunity to humbly thank the original caretakers of this land. Now we're going to turn it over to Chelsea. Everybody, my name is Chelsea. Um, I'm an intern with the Office of Sustainability. Uh, I'm currently a graduating senior majoring in environmental studies at Santa Jose State, and my pronouns are she, her, hers. Hi, I'm Parl. I currently work for the, oh, my pronouns are she or hers, and I currently work for the APITA task force as a programmer. And I'm a fourth year and my major is finance and I'll be graduating in December. Um, I will turn it over. My name is PJ and my full name is Badmaja, which means born out of a lotus flower. And I like to talk about that during Earth, Earth Month. Uh, my pronouns are she, her, hers. And I am a lecturer with the, in the Department of Environmental Studies here at San Jose State. And my research interests are in climate justice, environmental justice, um, the circular economy, and more specifically, the scaling of renewable technologies with respect to the impact on communities around the world. Hi, my name is Will Armeline, and I'm a uh the director of the San Jose State University Human Rights Institute. And I'm also a, a professor in sociology. Um, my research is around areas of human rights, uh, race and racism, criminal justice and policing. Uh, I'm a prison abolitionist. Uh, we work very hard on those issues at the Institute, um, but we are now starting to get into many other issues of expertise including housing, climate change, other aspects of wealth and income inequality and poverty, um, and these other sorts of, of uh, sort of bread and butter issues. Um, we're also uh, starting to tread into the territory of health and healthcare, um, and we look forward to, uh, you know, um, doing more work in those arenas with our partners here on campus and off. For those of us who are starting to or may know a little bit about the topic of climate change and environmental justice, do you guys mind sharing an overview of where we are currently in 2021? Sure, I'll take that one um, to start off. So climate change is basically the change in the global average temperature, and it's caused by greenhouse gas emissions that are released into the atmosphere. 
Um, when these greenhouse gas emissions are released faster than they can be cycled through all the different chemical cycles, like atmospheric water cycles, um, the result is in a warmer atmosphere and the impact are things like um, catastrophic and sometimes irreversible events like heat waves, flooding, hurricanes, we experience sea level rise, we are currently experiencing ocean acidification and land that um, when was once previously uh, you're able to farm on it, it was really fertile land has now become more arid, more desert-like. And we also know that climate change is primarily influenced by humans, right? We cause the predominant uh, sources of greenhouse gases, like from the burning of fossil fuels, and also from taking away uh, our carbon sinks, which is actually from deforestation. Um, so, I mean, that's kind of an overview of climate change. Now that you kind of provide us the overview of climate change, um, can you tell us a little bit more about the ways that we can deal with climate change? Yeah, I mean, um, so climate change in itself deals, it has, has two different strategies. There's mitigation and then there's adaptation strategies. And those are just big words to say that there are things we can do to bring down greenhouse gas emissions, and then there are things we can do to deal with, you know, the impact of climate change. And when we talk about climate justice and, and environmental justice, we really are focusing on the adaptation aspects because what's ended up happening is that most vulnerable communities are hit hardest by climate change. And over time, you know, they don't, they're not equipped with, um, they're not equipped to handle the adaptations that they need, whether it's moving away, you know, more inland, away from coastal communities, whether it's um, finding a new way of living, you know, because their homes and communities are destroyed. Um, I mean, we are dealing with it right now when, when we're looking at uh, Belize and Honduras, you know, we've, who've suffered from, um, from hurricanes, they're actually migrating into the United States. When you look at the fisheries around, say, the coasts of Ghana, um, the coast of the Philippines, people are dealing with ocean acidification that is causing the coral reefs to die, that is causing, you know, the fish, the fish to, to, to die, and they're not, the fish stocks are, are, are dropping. So there's just lots of ways that people are actually dealing with climate change right now. And our job as a global community is to look at adaptation um, methods, you know, to help people adapt to these differences. So I want to uh, jump in a little bit here. I think PJ did a really good job of, of answering almost an impossible couple of questions to answer briefly. Y'all hit her over the head. Um, so I, I think she, she, she handled that pretty well. I, I just want to add a couple, a couple of notes. So um, I think we really cannot think of climate change apart from our global system of production and consumption, what Marx would call our mode of production. Uh, and this, of course, is a neoliberal capitalist system. And the reason that we've reached largely from a sort of philosophical economic standpoint, largely the reason that we've reached the precipice where we find ourselves now 
is because of a pretty dunderheaded piece of, of basic economics that I guarantee you is still taught in our business school. I guarantee you these texts are still used on campus as they are on other campuses. Yeah, I'm going to say uncomfortable shit, definitely. Um, we still teach the very things that are bringing us to the point of extinction in our schools, in our businesses, in our culture, in our, in our sort of superstructure, as we would say, right? And, and here's what it is. Um, it was wrong ever, ever to think that you can have a system of eternal growth based on a planet of finite resource. And if you add on top of that, also the, some notion of unlimited access to private property and wealth, um, we then also have to confront how somehow we're supposed to solve all of these problems caused by that economic system that also put a, a vast lion share of our collectively produced resources into like three people, uh, the hands of, of, of literally a handful of folks. So uh, I've already sworn too much for this podcast. I've already spent my, my swears for, the, for the, the time limit. So I'll, I'll try and keep that down. But the point that I'm getting to here is that um, we've really systemically uh, uh, made a serious wrong turn, uh, not just as a country, but as, as frankly, a global civilization, uh, to the extent that we can, we can recognize a global civilization. Um, and, and so beginning to, to deal with that um, really cannot fall short of, of grappling with some of those fundamental questions. And it's really important that PJ talks about um, the differentiation between mitigation and, and actually re reduction or, or, or addressing uh, uh, climate change as a source, because you're, you're gonna have different sort of theories, and, and most of these are based on politics, not science, as to what can and should be mitigated and by whom. Um, and this is where, as, as PJ pointed out, we get into some very serious issues uh, of, you know, what we could call environmental justice, but we call it other things as well. Um, where the reality right now is that a vast majority of the greenhouse gas emissions and other kinds of very harmful pol pollution, by the way, that goes well beyond um, greenhouse gases and global, the global warming aspects of all this, um, are the most in, uh, uh, advanced nations of the world, the wealthiest nations in the world, and more importantly, the private corporations that are now much larger than some, some of these countries, um, who, who really, frankly, as Chomsky described them, are completely unaccountable tyrannies. And leaving this massive amount of resource and direction in our policy and our practice for so long in the hands of, frankly, unaccountable tyrannies. Uh, and these are the same fossil fuel companies who, for example, knew all about climate change the entire time they were making their profits since the early 1980s, and not only did nothing about it, but did everything they could to bury those kinds of things, right? These are literally um, those who are most responsible. We have data on this. We even know how responsible in terms of percentage and all that they are for this problem and these problems. So I say this for a couple of reasons that are very important. Let me just wrap with this. First of all, there are massive environmental justice issues to be had if we're going to do anything close to solving this in, in, in as PJ is trying to explain in, in, in a sort of just way. Right where where you have all of these these countries that frankly very little to do with creating the problem are going to be some of the first to pay the worst prices. So we're talking about islands uh, uh, that are going to be completely underwater. They literally won't exist anymore. 
uh, fisheries in the second and third world that, by the way, we also depend on at some point for our food production, um, also just being devastated. These kinds of things. And so there are very real um, logistical um, sort of challenges to redistributing resource such that some of this, this devastation can be, can be stopped. The, the other aspect of this that I really want to jump on here before I may not have a chance to come back to it is that there's been this notion for some time, and it's also uh, uh, bantied about by liberals and, and some who claim to be on the left. So I can't, we can't lay this all on the feet of the, of the right wing or of corporations, but there's this odd idea that somehow we're going to get ourselves out of this issue through our personal lifestyle choices and your personal consumption choices and like whether or not you're taking the plastic bag at Target or whatever it happens to be. And I just must caution us, th that is completely delusional. It is completely and totally delusional. And it is, it is a politics that actually has been created by your enemies, not by your friends. Um, uh, ExxonMobil is totally fine with that solution. Totally fine with it. Um, any one of you who thinks you are um, somehow a political resistor in your consumption choices might want to ask yourself how you're somehow still a consumer group if that is the case. Um, so, so again, I just say this to make sure that we understand this is not a problem that's down to our little personal choices as so much of our media tends to explain it. Uh, this is going to be solved systemically or we're not going to solve it. We're, we're either going to solve it systemically or we're all going to pay the price. I am in vehement agreement with what Will just said. I mean, every word of it, because um, I mean, if you look at the top S&P 500 companies, for example, you know, you've got Johnson & Johnson, Apple, Amazon, um, you know, all your pharmaceuticals, they are invested by a, like, you want to talk about like one of the biggest investors in the world, BlackRock. and the um the ceo of blackrock larry fink puts out these awesome letters you know talking about the goals and the strategies of his investments they invest by the way over seven trillion dollars into s p 500 companies and these mega corporations that um basically have decimated the palm oil uh, the, the the tropical forests of indonesia through palm oil by the way you'll find palm oil in all your cookies and your shampoo and pretty much every product that you use um and and anyway larry fink he when he when writing this letter last year and this year talked about climate change and sustainability as being the number one um direction that he wants to see every company going in but what's really sad is that of these 500 companies, barely 7% do anything towards sustainability. Um, they say they talk about plants, you know, up the wazoo. But if you walk into a Costco, try to buy some vegetables without buying it inside of a clamshell, plastic clamshell. You just can't. You know, it's it's so, yeah, I completely agree with you that the problem of climate change and climate justice isn't going to be solved by being, you know, us. I mean, we can help by not putting plastic straws in the ocean, but that's not going to solve the big problem. Yeah, I, I, just to be clear, I'm not giving you permission to like, uh, I don't know, to, I guess to dump all your motor oil in the lawn and the sewer <laughs> exactly. or something like that. It's just, I, I think, I think as, as Americans, especially, we, we've been socialized to be the consumer group of the world. 
And we've been socialized to think of everything in our life in terms of our consumption and those choices as being so important, not just in terms of our self-expression, but in terms of like all kinds of other things. And, and I think that leads us astray in this issue and where people have a tendency in the United States to say, well, I am not really into politics, I'm not really into these kind of questions. I don't know. I would just rather, you know, it's, it's, I, I hate to say uh, that is a suicidal, literally a, 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 a well, not suicidal, omnicidal uh, mentality at this point. Like we really have to be very honest with each other and say that that we are either going to make big fundamental changes and in investments in the next five to 10 years, or all of the species on this planet, not just ours, are going to pay the price. And there's really not a whole lot of argument against that at this point. Yeah, and I think that making those investments um, in each of the different sectors, be it transportation, uh, food, housing, is important, but we also have to pay attention to making it equitable. And I think that has to be part of the conversation and part of the solution, part of the um, innovation, part of the creativity of making sure that our solu the solutions that we, we come up with, the funding that we provide, um, pays attention to the systemic racism that's taken place in this country. Because, you know, historically, you've had uh, highways built in black, indigenous, and people of color communities. You've had toxic waste sites that have been put, um, placed in areas where there are low income neighborhoods and people of color. Um, there aren't as many green neighborhoods, you know, green spaces in those neighborhoods. So what I'm, I just want to say that we need to put the investment in and that funding has to go to the right places. I also just want to jump back a little bit about what Bill mentioned earlier about how you know, it's not just about the personal decision and personal choices that we're making and being more conscious about, you know, make whether it's like using uh, reusable straw over plastic straw or whatever. And I think that concept has just has been really, I guess, more popular nowadays, a lot more business um, that I've seen where people are like promoting, okay, let's use, uh, let's make everything green eco by making it reusable. And people think, okay, if I just switch from my plastic bottle to my reusable bottle, I'm saving the planet and that's all I need to do. But I think it's just so much more than just that. And a lot of my, my friends and peers that I talk to, they're like, oh yeah, I don't use plastic straw anymore. I use a reusable straw and I'm saving the planet and that's all we need, right? But I think that's just a lot more than just that. Um, and then earlier you just mentioned PJ about how um, BIPOC community, black indigenous and people of color are being disproportionately impacted by this. So can you share a little bit more about that and how they impacted, they are being impacted by corporations and how we can demand sustainable practices to be implemented? So yeah, that's a, that's a pretty big topic. And there's a lot of different sectors that we can talk about. Um, let's just take transportation, for example. So um, in a lot of low-income neighborhoods, for example, if businesses like grocery stores, healthcare services, banks um, are far from where black indigenous people and people of color uh, residents live, then they can't be part of this really great solution of walking and biking to work. Are you gonna bike 35 miles to your grocery store? I mean, cause sometimes that's how far they live. And so 
the first thing that has to happen is those services need to be offered locally, right? If they're going to participate in this solution that we talk about biking and walking to work. And then if employment takes them really far from their communities and they need to travel longer distances, then they're increasing their carbon footprint, right? And so what we're what we talk about in in the environmental world is oh well we're moving to renewables and renewables are going to power electrical electric vehicles so electrification is what needs to happen but if you look at palo alto um and then you compare that to east palo alto in terms of the infrastructure that's available to charge most people who own an electric vehicle will charge at home or at work which means they have infrastructure. They can pay for charging at home either through solar panels or they can pay for it you know, through regular electricity and it's fast charging either at work or at home. But there aren't really publicly accessible chargers in between. And then, oh, by the way, electric vehicles cost between thirty-five dollars to $60,000. I mean, how are you going to afford an EV um, you know, when you're 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 working in 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 an industry or sectors that don't pay that kind of money and so one of the things that i think we really need to pay attention to as um a society is is what are holding our corporations feet to the fire right like for example gm they are pledging to make um only electric vehicles in the year 20 2035 so only have a fleet of EV vehicles. They won't even be selling what we call internal combustion engines anymore. So if that's the case, then we need the infrastructure and they need to be sold at a price, you know, a price point that we can afford. I mean, that's just one area. So I think that's, those are great examples. Um, if you don't mind, I'll offer a one or two more that, that might be good for the audience if they want to look into these at all. So one of the common areas that, that it's really easy to look to to see um, the race and class aspects of, you know, sort of who pays the price for climate change and these uh, pollutive aspects. Um, so asthma rates and, and sort of um, air quality is a, is a great sort of thing to look at for this. So if you look at, for example, um, like the South Bronx in New York has one of the highest rates of asthma, lung issues, and cancers of anywhere in the country, including places in around in and around New York City and other boroughs that are literally a couple of miles away. And so I, I need people to understand that it really is that stark, you know, where you can be in one district that has uh, very, very high levels of health and is relatively clean, um, has necessary also also the other kinds of resources that PJ mentioned that add to general and public health. And then literally you can have a place that's, that's not very far away from that that has been zoned such that it takes all of the uh, sort of industrial pollutant. It might be a dumping ground for, for industrial waste, you know, all of these kinds of things. And this is classic across the country. You can, this is not unique to New York. It's not unique to any state either. This is something that in fact, you will find all across the United States where the poorest communities, which also because of the legacies of segregation and other things tend to be communities of color in some cases, or where communities of color are concentrated, are the places where the corporations are most easily able to externalize as an actual concept in corporate law, externalize cost to the public. That is the pollutant cost of everything they're spilling in your water, in your air, and everywhere else. As you can imagine, 
when corporations try and come into rich communities to do that, which a lot of them won't even try to do that, they get sued until they can't take it anymore, or they're frankly just not going to have, or they will have a more hostile local government. But poor places that are desperate for money and jobs, for example, are a much easier target for corporations to come in and dump all their stuff and, and to, to have not the best practices for sake of easy profit. And so, so you can really look across the country and whether it's who's exposed to lead in their water, who has the highest asthma rates due to, to not just aspects of warming, but aspects of pollutant. Um, all of these things really end up being pretty clear cut in the data in terms of who pays the price. And it's the poorest among us and other, uh, uh, let's say, disenfranchised communities, which includes communities of color, uh, reservations for our Native American communities, and all of these other folks that have had sort of the short end of the stick when it comes to these kinds of protections and resources. The other way that you can see this in terms of race and classes at the global level so much of, you know, we, we talked about everything we did before. We didn't really say who's who, right? So who is going to pay a great deal of the price for climate change and rising sea levels and these sorts of things? Well, we know from global study now that it's going to be overwhelmingly our world's vastly poor. Uh, uh, most of these folks are, are populations of color and folks from the formerly colonized world, right? And there's all kinds of connections to that we may not have time to discuss now, but uh, so I, I urge folks to understand that those patterns uh, are, cannot just be seen at the national level, but they can be seen at the, the international or global level as well. And there's, there's very good reasons for that that have been embedded in our system for, for, for decades. Um, I just wanted to add another example that's kind of closer to home. So if any of us buy clothes or goods, they probably get dropped off at the Port of Oakland. And the Port of Oakland backs into the West Oakland, which was historically a redlined area, uh, meaning that um, people of color, black people, um, couldn't really afford to buy anything outside of that uh, area in West Oakland. And so all the truck routes go through their neighborhoods that pick up goods at the ports. And also the, there was a train that used to go right through there too. And there have actually been um, um, measurements done on the air quality using actually a Google car and another startup that measured the air quality street by street. And so then the, the air quality changed neighborhood by neighborhood. And it, it really just shows how it's so concentrated right there. And, um, you know, it's just, it's been decades and they have also have some of the highest asthma rates and it really just dominoes because then you get into healthcare issues. The children are missing school. There's education that comes out of that. There's, you know, health issues and education and then, and then work, missing work because parents need to take care of their kids. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. And it, and it definitely translates globally as well in communities around the world that, that are in similar situations. I just kind of want to touch on a little bit earlier about what uh, Bill said about how a lot of these corporations, they move into um, low income BIPOC communities because I guess like generally they don't have a lot of representation there and advocates for them. But also I just kind of want to be like, a, I guess like a, the, the devil advocate here because I've been kind of following the news about how Google are moving into downtown San Jose 
and then they said how they're going to create a lot more job opportunities and then um, affordable housing for like all these communities right and they have like this agreement um so what do you think about that when they say by moving into like this area they're creating more jobs and they're actually benefiting rather than like uh, harming the communities sure um well so this gets us a little bit away from climate change but not probably as much as one might think, because as, as I will argue, um, are, are, are there scientific questions, are, are there genuine questions that are in front of us to, to solve these issues, particularly in their massive global overlaps and their complicated solutions? Absolutely, absolutely. Are those the major uh, uh, issues or, 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 or hurdles? Not on your life. Those are political questions and questions of power. Google is now one of the most powerful corporations on the planet, bar none. It, no matter how you're measuring, in terms of size, wealth, impact, uh, their, and other things you might not think about, for example, their deep, deep integration to the surveillance and military state of the United States, and that, that then thus also expands globally. They are deeply, deeply invested in our economic and military competition with China. Right. So we're talking about literally one of the sort of new masters of the world, basically. We, we do live in those times again, right? The sort of we're in a new robber baron age of, of tech and old fossil fuel companies that are essentially still ruling the roost, not just locally for us, but globally and nationally as well. And so I think it's hysterical that we would think that there's any incentive for Google to keep those promises. Um, I, I, I took part in a lot of the organizing around this, and um, I, I, I think there's a lot of genuine effort uh, on all kinds of sides to, you know, make something good out of that deal. But I mean, just objectively speaking, um, the promises have been smaller and smaller each time we hear from them. Uh, they are frankly not going to deliver. I mean, I'll just say it right now, it does not look right now like anything close to what was promised is going to be delivered. And the extent to which it will, it'll be come along with all kinds of little uh, uh, explanations and, and fine print. Um, and overall, what you're gonna see is something that I can't believe we're even gonna discuss in our region, which the estimate right now is that rents will rise, just rents, just rents will rise in our city near $800 a month just in the initial couple of years of those employees coming down here. I don't know. I mean, like, I don't know what our audience knows. You know, I don't know how, how local or, 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 or wide our audience is, but already we are completely unsustainable in terms of housing costs, all kinds of, of, of social issues in, in Silicon Valley and in, in the city. And, and to think that somehow Google coming down here and rising costs at that level, um, really doing nothing. I mean, let's be honest, they are giving us nothing. They are gonna give jobs that they would have already had to give to local populations. They were given a ton of land, not at market value, by the city. No community, not a single community is being given land. So Google gets a ton of land a ton of freedom, a ton of resource, basically for free. I mean, basically. And then what do all the communities get? An offer of jobs, jobs that they would have had to offer them anyway. 
Are they good jobs? No. These aren't software developer jobs. These are service sector jobs. These are literally jobs that the company knows will never pay enough to live in the prices that they are in fact creating. Meanwhile, Google, by the way, buys up a bunch of housing for its own workers and for its own investment and other kinds of things. So I, I don't know, I, honestly, I don't know what kind of delusional fantasy anyone in this community was in thinking that somehow the actions of Google would be anything other than the types of exploitation that got Google where they are in the first place. They're not a charity. Yeah, so just to wrap that into climate change, I mean, directly, people who are currently dealing with the flooding, say we had in 2017 of the Guadalupe River, people who are experiencing poor air quality because they're Apartments haven't been upgraded in years. Um, people who live by highways and who don't have tree-lined, pre-tree-lined streets, um, they're all going to struggle to stay in this area and most likely will be gentrified out and have to move out of the area. And then they still will not, they will become like climate change migrants almost because they're gonna be feeling the heat waves they're going to be suffering from the, the flooding. They're going to be dealing with the wild. And so the, the, these same service workers that you're talking about will probably be the ones who deliver, um, who have to be out, outside landscaping, um, probably outside. So when you have the next wildfire, for example, we all remember the orange smoke and the orange clouds that we saw, but I was safe inside my house. And most of the people who were delivering and who were outdoors, who, who couldn't stay indoors because their work and their service work required them to be outside, suffered from the air pollution. So that's really what happens in these kind of situations um, when the rents go up and the new condominiums are built, is the people that are living in these communities struggle. And they struggle from air pollution and climate justice issues. And I want to add one more thing in case people think that I was just like sort of ranting uh, on my own feelings here. Uh, for anyone that doubts how Google got this done, just look at the recent San Jose Spotlight article from last week that shows the lobbying, shows all of the lobbying activity at city council. What you're going to see on that is that at the very top of that list is Google. And you're going to see the number of times they visited council is exponentially large than any of the other lobbying industries. That's why they're coming. It's not they're not coming because it was obviously good for anybody else. They're coming because they're powerful enough to do what they want. And little local politicians, unless they're full of courage, frankly, cannot stand up to that, that finance and, and that, that, that political force. We as a community have to find ways to resist those, those forces because your, your politicians are not going to do that for you. They're just not. Um, and this, this is a clear demonstration um, of that. And, and look, I, I, I don't mean to sound like a you know, uh, pes pessimist or anything like that either. I just I think it's very interesting to see how beaten down we've become to where we are so delusional that you are going to pray for your exploiter, your overlords, basically, to save you. And you're going to think that, oh, they're coming here to help us. 
Why? Why would you think that? I mean, I literally, I just want to ask the question openly. Can anyone give me one good reason why I should even entertain that? I honestly don't know of one. I mean, unless you want to get into some childish kind of bullshit about, well, I think some companies are caring and compassionate. Corporations don't have feelings. They are legal entities whose only job legal, is to create they're profit, legal entities, right? They're legal entities that have person status. Yes, which is even worse. Exactly. Which is even worse. So, so again, I just, I, I, I find, I guess my most interesting answer to your question isn't even to answer the question. It's to point out that we have hit such a delusional place to where we're even in that conversation. And we're not just saying, no, you know, you live here. We'll tell you what this is going to mean. We'll tell you what you're going to pay us. And if you want to go other places, go other places. Because I also will call bullshit on, on you know, well, you know, we have to keep them here. They, they know why they're here. There was actually a really great book written uh, two years ago by a UC professor who's a long time um, resident in California. He writes about California economies, a Marxist economist. Um, he's now a professor emeritus. Of course, forgetting the name of the book. I'll remember it here in a minute. But he goes deep into this analysis, really challenging this notion that like, like there aren't other reasons that they know they need to stay in this area. And, and that, that it's quite foolish, actually, for populations to think that we have to constantly please them to keep them here. That no, they're, they're where they want to be. And, and, right, and as, as Tesla is showing you right now, too, they want to go somewhere else. They'll go somewhere else. These are... These are some of the most powerful companies that have ever existed in the face of the earth. I mean, Google just in, in 2018, Google hit the trillion dollar valuation, which was a massive record that no one ever thought possible. Here we are 2021, there are multiple companies, including Apple and others that are $2 trillion. Bezos, if he isn't already, is gonna be the first trillionaire. So, I mean, we've just gotten to like such, again, I keep using this word because the only word I can come up with, delusional place when it comes to these kinds of conversations and decisions about the distribution of resource in our society. I like how you mentioned that. That's a conversation killer, wasn't it? <laughs> that's a, that's a I mean, I drop. was trying to, I was trying to think about what I could riff off of, and I was like, "Well, we could talk about food insecurity," and then I'm like, mm, "No, that, you, that's it. That's the bottom line right there." Now, but there's other interesting things for us to talk about. I, I just, I, I, I have a, I just, maybe it's my own fault of being in these conversations so often, right? And it's just like. The fundamental questions never asked. And, and when, when I bring it up, look, I'll be on a panel with, you know, housing experts and corporate types, you know, not, not at such a, not such a, 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 let's say, apologetic audience. But the thing is, I'll say the same things and the same silence occurs. Now, on some level, that should be really jarring for us. Absolutely. I mean, that should be very jarring for us that when I ask that very simple question, nobody has an answer nothing zero literally crickets i think i think everything you said was just like it was incredibly spot on and like as a business major i could tell you right now like you hit the nail on the head because like when we like every single class i think i've had like we just idolize Silicon Valley. Like we go into what great companies they are, how they build this empire, but we never talk about 
like how actual awful things they do to the people in the same community like we really put them on this pedestal and it's it is insane like why are we doing that and let me bring this back to climate change because i really want to do that here because i I think carl's what i i really love what you're saying because i talk to this with my students too about how we come to think about some of the some of our own exploiters right it's like as like these wonderful people and these innovators and geniuses and all this kind of stuff and i really hate to break it to everybody but the heads of these companies are not geniuses i i I, I'm, i'm open to be proven wrong right like steve's steve jobs is a guy who thought that juicing was going to cure his cancer, but we're supposed to worship him as an as an absolute, almost godlike figure because he made a bunch of money. And how did he make that money? I hate again. I hate to break it to everybody. He made the money the same way every other capitalist makes money, which is the exploitation of labor for profit. Your good little idea doesn't make any money. Is a good idea. Lots of people have good ideas. There's some really intelligent people in prisons, some geniuses in prisons. Are they billionaires? No, because a good idea is not enough to make money. Money is not made until labor is exploited. And the other myth, besides the fact that somehow all these folks are unquestionable geniuses and they are not, they might have particular skill sets in particular areas, which all kinds of folks do who are not billionaires and are not titans that run the world or would claim no one even want that. These are companies like every other company that builds their profit from the exploitation of labor and resource. Yeah. And those tech companies are just as horrific as any other company in doing so. You know where all the heavy metal comes in these gadgets? Literally, where where do they come from? Does anyone know? Yeah, it comes what kind from of places. All, from mines, it comes from like cobalt for the batteries comes from the Democratic Republic of Congo, where children Ingo. are mining. Well, that's the area of my research. I mean, we don't have to go far back in history to look at the exploitation of companies in Silicon Valley on our natural resources and the communities that are affected by it. Because the Bay Area has some of the highest concentration of Superfund sites in the nation. Um, the Superfund law or CERCLA um, that was put out, you know, we've got 23 in this tiny little area. That is pretty high. And the Superfund site is, is basically an area where the toxicity levels are so high because of the semiconductor industry. So silicon, you know, when they used to fabricate uh, silicon wafers, actually my mom worked at Faraday Electronics back in the day. Um, their IBM was up here and it was really, really dangerous because they would basically dump their waste into the waterways and there's actually a huge toxic plume that runs under Moffett Field even today which is why you see those abandoned um, army barracks over there because it's not um, livable. I wouldn't want my children you know rolling around the grass with the fumes from these toxic plumes running underneath you know coming up into the atmosphere. So the Bay Area has not done a, a the Silicon Valley specifically has done a and you know I guess I can say this on your podcast a piss poor job of cleaning up after themselves. I mean they leave waste everywhere they go, and we are running going to be running into some of the some of these similar issues 
when it comes to renewable technologies because renewables, just like your, um, your flat screen TVs, also use uh, the top 12 metals and rare earth metals out there. They also use glass and cement and aluminum and steel and copper and nickel and silver and gold and all of these things are used for renewable technologies and we're talking about upgrading and upscaling to 100% renewable. But the problem with that is that in order to scale, those rare earth metals need to either come from somewhere or be recycled, which is really hard to do. And in fact, one of, one of the things I do with my students um, uh, and it translates into metals is with what we do with plastics. I have them collect plastics over a period of about three weeks. And then I have them go to their municipal website uh, and look up the list to see which of the plastics they collected are actually recyclable. And usually the number hovers around between six and 20%, which is a deplorable. I mean, it's low, it's so low. And, and most people don't realize that they can't, you can't recycle the clamshells, you can't recycle the plastic you know, bags, you can't recycle any of this stuff, it's too difficult to recycle. The same thing is gonna be happening with metals. It's not that easy to, maybe with glass you could, maybe with, with copper, but it's complex and it's difficult. And so we've run into this issue of, of taking advantage of our, way, of our um, natural resources and because of our consumption level and because of these big corporations that don't pay any attention to waste and what happens to it, you know, we need to do this differently when we come to renewables. We need to think of it completely differently, put in a different ecosystem. So that was a lot. Um, so with all that in mind, um, with all of these issues, what do you all think that are some ways we can start to connect with what is happening on a global scale and to our local environment? Um, I'll say a couple of things. So um, the first thing I think we have to remember is these are global questions. So, um, and, but, but that doesn't prevent us from, from engaging. So, so in other words, I, that shouldn't be seen as like, intimidating like oh this is so big it's a global question so like what role do i have to play and the beautiful thing about that is it's also an opportunity to build that level of solidarity so um ultimately and here i'm, I'm expressing my view here in the view of, of others like me sort of politically i guess in, in our analysis of the problem and solutions um so i i think the i'm one of the folks who thinks that the, the climate change solutions these sort of scientific solutions need to go hand in hand with the sort of shift in our economic system um, away from capitalism toward a form of collectivism that actually is survivable for our species and others. Um, and so both of those things can only really be done by creating working class solidarity in the United States and on the international scale. And so that means doing things like thinking about in California how our labor movement can partner with the labor movement of migrant workers and farm workers, right? These are climate issues, these are labor issues, and that is a very low-hanging fruit in terms of how to start creating international connections. We actually invited, um, so in our human rights lecture series in 2016, 
our keynote speaker was an amazing uh, uh, labor figure in our history. His name is Baldemar Velasquez. And Baldemar is, is one of the folks who was trained along with Cesar Chavez and, and others that are more well known in California, except instead of staying out here for the UFW, he actually created Flock, uh, it, the Farm Labor Organizing Committee in the Midwest and the East Coast. Now, Baldemar has also risen a great deal in the ranks over the years in terms of the union. He is on the International Board of AFL-CIO, uh, which they call SHOTS. And they, as a union, have branched out internationally. So Baltimore does not just organize farm workers in the United States that work in tobacco farms and places like all over the Carolinas. He is working right now to organize along with those folks, farmers in the, uh, all over the African continent, other folks uh, elsewhere in Latin America, and so forth. And so, and so there are all kinds of examples of these efforts to bring international communities of working people together to find mutual solutions and to work in solidarity to pressure what, again, I hate to break it to everybody, is a global owning class. And I, I, this is something I end up coming back to often in our intersectional debates, where I'll sometimes be yelled at as a class reductionist or something like that, but I, I will argue I am not. Uh, I'm frankly just looking at the situation as it is, and whether you want to do climate change, uh, 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 reparations for African Americans in the United States, I don't care which thing it is, the same handful of people are holding all the money, and you're going to have to find a way to pry it from their hands. And in our history, there's only one way to do that, and that's by the direct challenge of those who are economically exploited for that money. Uh, there really is no other example of that happening successfully without the sort of solidarity and resistance of the exploited classes of people in that, in that community or society, whether it's the colonized, the working class, or both. So um, I, I, my overall sort of point here is that I, I think the answer is difficult, but if we're able to do it, it provides us the basis for solving any number of our problems together, which is, again, to build a, a coherent working class movement in the United States and elsewhere in the world. And that also means with like a coherent analysis of the problem and all that, this is not mistaking spectacle for movement, another problem on the left. It's not going to be solved just in the streets and yelling and calling people out and all that stuff. This means the boring work. This means the real hard work. And we just learned that, by the way, with our loss in the Amazon unionization fight this week. Right? A lot. We have a lot to learn yet in terms of what this work looks like. And as it turns out in that Amazon struggle, Twitter ain't going to cut it. So... Um, you know, I, I think it's a big challenge in front of us, but we need to be very honest about how we're going to get ourselves out of this. You notice I didn't say uh, we can just start buying X or, you know, use this kind of car instead or whatever. And I guess that's my message. This is not going to change comfortably. This newsflash. This is not going to like be like hella comfortable and it's just going to be really slight shifts in my lifestyle, maybe. And, you know, we'll just kind of buy different, like PJ said, I'll just be buying an electric car in a few years, you know, and I'll just have my, no. We together are going to have to actually challenge power 
successfully, not in lose, not in just have spectacles we talk about with each other successfully, or we're all going to lose. So I, I would just want to add on to that um, by bringing up another point that I think is would complement what 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 Will's been talking about, and that is um, taking a, a a taking some inspiration from the tech companies because they have been highly innovative, and they love to use this word uh, disruption. You know, let's be disruptive. This is the new disruptive technology. And one of the most disruptive things that I have seen and read about, and I know a little bit about this, is Block Power. Um, and the reason that I bring up this company, Block Power, is because I've worked on energy efficiency and conservation efforts for years and have found that it is not, you know, it doesn't make a lot of money. There isn't a lot of, you know, it's not exciting like like will said you just have to go in and put the hard work in and do it but energy efficiency is actually one of the ways to bring down greenhouse gas emissions one of the most effective ways studies have shown over and over again that if we just had more efficient buildings and more efficient um residences that we would do better so block power is a company out of brooklyn and um, started by uh, a black man who went out and got a degree at Columbia and came back to his neighborhood where he grew up and basically trained a bunch of people to upgrade and improve the building envelope. So what does that mean? They went in and they you know, um, filled all the leaks. They went in and put in high technology like Nest to do automatic temperature control. They put in HVAC systems into these neighborhoods and the people who were trained were part of that neighborhood so they could protect the long-term investment of the community members. So they weren't, it wasn't like they went in, did it and left, right? The, the people who know how to maintain those systems live there. And so he could do that um, neighborhood to neighborhood. Now, uh, the real interesting part comes from where a cut of the savings of that energy now goes back to the investors. And so block power can profit and move to other cities and do this again. And this is just kind of the innovative idea that he came up with for this one company. Now, what I would challenge students out there who are getting their education is you all understand what the issues are with climate change. I mean, I know from, from teaching environmental issues, you understand it at a very real sense. And I challenge you to just be more innovative and creative and come up with ideas and then get involved at your local uh, municipalities and attend those, you know, um, city council meetings and fight for what you believe in. And I think that might have the biggest impact in the short and the long term. The one other thing I want to say here, because I don't want my, my earlier points to be misunderstood. When I say that this, this, what we need to do is not necessarily going to be everything meeting your comfort. I just mean in the sense that like, this is going to mean very real change and very real change that we are going to have to force and, 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 and realize. Uh, and that means figuring it out together as much as it is fighting together. Right. So, um, but, but what I will say is there are, there's a beautiful world, on, on not on the far other side of that, but on the near term side of that as we win. So things like um, 
so take, for example, the infrastructure bill that, that Biden put out. One of the things that, that people are a little curious about is like, okay, great, you put a bunch of money into infrastructure, but you're just basically working on the same kind of infrastructure we've always had since the 1950s. Why can't we get the 300 mile an hour trains like China has, like all these other places have? Like, this is insane. And, and what I want people to hear is like, that's because he's trying to do what I just said before. This is trying to move forward with the same people in power, the same people getting paid, the same industries dominating and pretending as if, well, we'll just do that a little different and better. But don't worry, everybody. Nothing else is going to be different. That's just fantasy. I mean, that's just absolute fantasy. And it's fantasy for the for the for the privilege of those few ruling owning class folks who are really just concerned with not getting bumped from the throne. Um, you know, so, so I'm not saying that like what we're fighting for is going to be some like Mad Max beyond Thunderdome kind of experience, you know, kind of like uh, existence and like all this, like, no, there's very real reasons to fight for beautiful, affordable social housing yeah. where we can actually go figure live in a nice, beautiful place and not have to spend two thirds of your income every month to live there. Uh, there's a reason to want high-speed, cheap rail. Um, then you don't even have to buy a car anymore. I mean, again, we, some of these notions in the United States are so hegemonic. They're so they're so built into our common sense that we can't even imagine these other ways to move or these other ways to go. And so, I do want people to to understand that, like, you are able to fight for a better life here. This isn't just a fight for like the survival or the moral win or anything like this is literally the fight for a better life for all of us, uh, all of us. So that, you know what I mean? It's, it's not the sacrifice of so many people for the unbelievable benefit of a such a small number of folks. And I think I think the most powerful, frankly, data on that right now is is and I know it's kind of ad nauseum, but I, I think it's worth repeating as much as we can is the fact that our owning and ruling classes just absolutely triumphed through the pandemic, politically, economically, every way you cut it. And I don't know, again, I'm left sitting here thinking as a leftist, like I don't know what else people need to see, right? To, 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 to demonstrate that th this is not a system and these are not entities and people who share your best interest, who, who, who are even frankly invested in your survival, let alone your happiness. And so we should, we should no longer be asking these questions about, well, I wonder if Google's gonna come help us. That already tells me we're in the wrong, we don't understand anything that's going on. We've already been beaten down to a point or, or, or whatever to where like, well, okay, let's see, you know, so, so I, I just mean, not, I, not I, to belabor the issue or bring bring up another example, but I whenever you say that I keep thinking about um, you know all of the grocery stores and how they put all of and it, there's just so much thought put into how a person enters a grocery store all the fresh fruits and vegetables you got to go find uh, in the back or on the sides but all the cookies and the junk is right in the middle of the grocery store. And it, it just tells you that they're not looking at our best interest. They're not looking at our health. They're looking at how to make money, you know, and 
agribusiness is a big part is like one of the biggest reasons why we have food deserts and food insecurity. I mean, you look at every single sector that that Will is uh, talking about and you have a situation where people, people, communities, water, um, water bodies, the air that people breathe, the food that they eat has either polluted or decimated or they're trampling on somebody. And the only way to get out of that situation is for a complete dynamic shift. There is a study that came out uh, in the last month uh, that looked at, um, we, we were talking about this earlier, for example, plastics in the water. And so uh, just so people understand, all of these things are absolutely connected. So climate change um, essentially has to do with, with um, uh, greenhouse gases and the warming of the planet. But the thing is, is all of the impacts of that are further exacerbated by pollution. So, and one of the best places to look at that is, for example, in waterways, in, in our oceans, in our fresh waterways, and these kinds of things. Because, for example, your access to potable water will depend not only on the fact that most of that potable water is about to literally melt into the salty ocean and be gone for good, literally, but also that we've, we've, we've soiled, and, and I mean for generations, so much of the existing freshwater freshwater uh, 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 stores, I guess, if you will, to also a, a really cramp our, our chances at survival with water we can use. And so to, to uh, one of the, I, I love this data because it's something that people can actually remember. A study just came out in the past month looking at several cities in the United States that, that suggested that in many of these cities, if you're drinking the tap water, you are doing the, the, same, the exact same thing as eating a credit card a week. So you are taking in as enough plastics just in drinking that water that would be the same as you literally cutting up and eating a credit card on your sandwich or whatever once a week. Yeah, you're we're all definitely eating plastic. So, and that's also in all the fish we're eating and all of it. So, so these, these issues are all connected, but they're connected in my view and in the view of others in my milieu through the aspects of this economic system because why are all those plastics in the water well they're in the water because you have these corporations that are externalizing that cost to a public that it is conquered and it is not able to to protect itself from from you know those those uh, oil and gas companies up in vallejo dumping into the air and dumping into the soil and dumping into the water right so so these are all actually connected and it really has to do with who rules and who makes those decisions as a part of rule. Yeah, because you definitely don't pay for the water that you use to produce goods and, and, and products. You take it for free. I mean, a really good example of this, which makes me sick, is right after, you know, during the um, Flint, Michigan water crisis, what ended up happening, I mean, the, the reason that the Flint River was so polluted to begin with was because of a hundred years of General Motors dumping into the Flint River. But then what ended up happening is they lobbied to the, um, the council members of Flint and said, well, we can't use Flint water because it's corroding our automotive industry, our automotive parts. So they got to use Lake Huron water where the residents of Flint, Michigan were still stuck with Flint water. 
And then Nestle, get this, Nestle, the company, went and bottled fresh water for free or for a very minimal price and then sold that bottled water to Flint residents. I mean, you have to look at this and laugh, but at the same time, you're going to throw up because you can't believe how asinine that situation is for those people that live there. And by the way, if you think that's bad now, the conversation has already begun about selling water futures and they're already being sold. So if, if you think this is a, a sort of like a dystopic vision now, wait until every bit of fresh water available is subject to the literally the casino market. Then you're going to start to see things like, can whole communities even afford water? Right. Because the cost of that water is going to be impacted because now it's actually going to be a financial instrument that's bought and sold on private markets, not just the United States, all over the world. So and again, a, what is the central concern here? Capital. Exactly. Capital. There's there's a woman. And it I will not stop. Her name. There's a woman. I forget her name, but she's with the Shinnecock Indians. And she has been fighting uh, the Shinnecock are out of Long Island, what used to be what, what is now currently Long Island, New York. And the Shinnecock Indians, um, you know, uh, they're fighting for the rights to name bodies of water as as per, with person status, just like corporations. So that might be a, a way out, but that movement needs to get a lot more support, a lot more traction behind it to fight against um, the cap capitals and the capital system and, and corporations. All right, so um, I guess based going off all of that, which was really informative, and I'm glad I got to hear all of that. I guess we can center it more to Bay Area residents and what we can do to help fight climate change. Well, I think it, it still comes down to the kinds of things that I said before. So I, I think really um, the, the sort of organizing of communities and also workforces and these sorts of things around these issues is what's going to be necessary. So, um, and you know, there are some, some examples of this that we can pull from in terms of like, you know, what's the basis for organizing? Well. Take, for example, um, the flood that happened in San Jose a few years ago of the uh, Cody Creek area, right? And, you know, who was impacted by that? Those were largely our, our poorest, you know, relatively poor communities, our working class communities, our Latinx and the documented communities are, are a lot of the folks that live along the, that, that region. And just like in Oakland, right, it's the low lying regions that that suffer these kinds of impacts. And so as a result of that flood, those communities organized and they work together to, 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 to push back, to uh, have demands met by the city and others. Now they didn't win all of their battles, but, but they were able to organize together. And it was in their, their, their experience of that together was the basis of that. And they were able to move forward in a, in a positive and productive way. And, and since then have continued organizing to prevent um, another sort of flood disaster from screwing all of them over again and having them all forced out of their homes. And, and so I just share that as an example because we have the bases for organizing already around us, right? Like it, it's just a matter of recognizing that you're in community with those people, right? So 
whether it's the people you live with, whether it's people you work with, whether it's right, right, these are all of the folks for whom are, you know, that, 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 that sort of we live our lives on the day to day with and in our days rise and fall with, right, and our, our well being rises and falls with. Um, but, you know, we don't tend to think that way now. Like, like, unfortunately, and I'm not going to blame it all on social media, but we want to believe that all kinds of people that don't give a shit about us have some sort of connection to us or that we should have some sort of connection to them or look up to them or something like that. When frankly, you know, the people that we really depend on and should, should hear, hear, uh, see as heroes and, 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 and really respect are the people that have your back on a daily basis, right? The, all the people that make sure that you're okay. Uh, the nurses, for example, that helped me uh, get my second shot this week or that helped me feel better after my surgery or, or, or all of the people that I depend on and my team. It's like, so all of the people that are actually a part of your life instead of whatever you fantasize about when you're online or in your uh, Twitter following or whatever it happens to be, those are the people you should be organizing with. Those are the people that you should be talking to about these issues. Those are the people that you should be creating organizations with, pushing back with, uh, 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 figuring out where your power is with one another when you grow and grow and grow as a group. Now that said, you can also, there's also, fortunately you're in California in the Bay Area. So there's tons of organizations here working on these issues. Like you're not in the middle of Iowa, right? So I would just say that wherever your skill set happens to be, like think real hard about, you know, what can I offer a movement like this? What am I good at? What do I enjoy doing? Right. And then seek those roles out in the appropriate organizations. And there's all kinds of those. There's the Sunrise Movement. There's Extinction Rebellion. There's all kinds of local orgs. There's all kinds. Of, and, and, and they're everywhere. Right. It just depends on sort of what's your spot. Like, what, what are you into? What do you think you can offer? You know, all those other kinds of things and just jump in. You know, that's I, I think what it requires is that last piece is just having the confidence and the courage to know that you have a place, right? You have a place in these movements somewhere, you know, and, and finding where that place is and, and just trying to enjoy that, right? Like, I think the other thing is we think about all this is work. Like, I know I don't need more work, um, right? But, but I suffer from loneliness, like everyone else in our society suffers from loneliness. And these are chances to create very real connections with real, actual flesh and blood, meat world people. Uh, uh, right. And, 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 and I think we should see that as an opportunity to enrich our lives, not just to like do something politically, I don't know, uh, in the direction that we would like. And if you are looking for a place to start, uh, some, some good background reading, which I could, um, which I'd love to, to suggest is the equitable climate action, the 2030 equitable Oakland's. Uh, City of Oakland Equitable Climate Action Plan, which actually gives such a great list of stakeholders, organizations that you can get involved with, um, gives you some ideas in, in different areas of, of innovation and cooperation and um, collaborative projects that they're working on. I mean, it is part of uh, the Oakland's a a Climate Action Plan. I mean, San Jose has a Climate Smart Action Plan. I mean, every city has one of these action plans, which is interesting, but I really love Oakland's because they have included equity in every single step. 
and there's a really good background primer there on all the different areas. So um, I would just like to follow up with what Will said and, and, and tell you that, you know, it, it does take a little bit of courage, but with that, with the boost of inspiration from somewhere, you, you can get involved and um, there are just so many opportunities to use your skills for sure. There are also for those uh, interested in the sort of, so this is great. So PJ gave a really excellent resource for local stuff. And I realized that as I was ranting on and, you know, doing my thing, talking about some of the macro level stuff, people might want to call bullshit or they might want to look into some of these things themselves. Uh, and I invite you to do so. Like I say to my students, uh, I would really prefer that you don't believe anything I say and you think I'm lying to you the whole time. And then you go and look it all up and find it out for yourself. And then you can tiptoe back to me however you like. That's I, I would much prefer that than just sort of, you know, uh, nodding along. So, so here are two really good books for, that are super accessible and they get into the Green New Deal stuff and their implications at a sort of macro level. Uh, one is called A Planet to Win, Why We Need a Green New Deal. Both of these are a couple of years old. That's why I'm picking them too. They're not like brand new. They've been around for some time. Um, and so that's this one here again. Uh, Planet to Win, Why We Need a Green New Deal by uh, Kate Aronoff, Alyssa. It's actually by several authors. Um, and then the second one, which is very similarly titled and covered for some reason, uh, Climate Crisis and the Global Green New Deal. Climate Crisis and the Global Green New Deal. And this is by really famed scholars and thinkers, uh, Noam Chomsky and Robert Pollan. Uh, and both are short, they're paperback, they're cheap, they're accessible, and you can read them pretty easily and it'll give you a really good sort of macro view of what we're dealing with. Well, I think that concludes our podcast today. I would like to thank you all so much for joining us. Um, thank you to Professor PJ and Professor Will Amerlin, and also for Peru for participating in this important, important conversation, especially on Earth Month. We really want to highlight like the issues that are going on in our community and then are impacting all of us. Um, so with that being said, thank you all for listening to our podcast today. If y'all would like to get more involved with sustainability on campus, uh, feel free to follow us at SGSU Green Campus on social media. Um, and also you can check out sgsu.edu slash sustainability for our lineup events that we have going on. Um, and then also follow SGSU Mosaic at Center as well. And anybody else want to plug in your... I just want to thank you, Chelsea and Paul and the Office of Sustainability and Mosaic for uh, giving me a chance to talk about stuff I, I love and, and I'm passionate about. Yeah, same. I just want to say thank you and how proud of I am of our Mosaic Cross-Cultural Center on campus. Um, for those who don't know, they don't just do this podcast. They're an incredible center on campus for our students and they do a ton of really important programming. We've been in partnership with them to do some of that programming over the years. And so I just want to say how much we appreciate that resource um, for our community and for our campus. Um, but yeah, thank you so much. And anyone who wants to learn more about the Human Rights Institute, they can find us at www.sjsu.edu backslash HRI. Um, and any student that would be interested in the Human Rights Minor Program, all you need to do is simply reach out to the Justice Studies Department and say, hey, I am interested in the human rights minor and they will set you up with an advisor and you'll be ready to go.
And if you didn't know, APIDA is the task force on campus for Asian Pacific Islander and Desi Americans. And we'll soon be on campus. We will soon have a center in the student union or wherever they put us. And our Instagram handle is at SJCUAPIDA, A-P-I-D-A. Thank you.